Principal Matters Podcast, episode 254. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about place and space with my co-host, Jen Schwanke, who's now the assistant superintendent. Is it Dublin Public Schools or Dublin ISD? How do you, how do you, how do I describe your new title, Jen Schwanke? Well, you nailed it. I am the assistant superintendent in Dublin City Schools here in Ohio. So yes, new roles, but a lot of the same problems. Um, you know, that joke, same problems, different address. There's a lot to that. And the author of two books with ASCD, the re- most recent one being The Principal Reboot. I just want to tell a quick story. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to drive about 300 miles across Oklahoma to visit a great education friend, Laura Bullock, who is the middle school principal of the year for our eight, and Ida Bell Middle School, which she leads in that quaint community in southeastern Oklahoma. Immediately, I was struck as I walked into that place by pride that she and her school community have taken in, in the school's landscaping, in the signage, in the color. And later, we were visiting a school um, nearby high school, and it was covered, the entire property was covered in these towering pines. And I said to her, oh my gosh, I don't know if I've ever been on a campus with so many beautiful big trees. And she said, well, there's some history there because the original principal at that school had, or maybe the facility manager had planted the trees. And over time, there was a lot of debate over whether they should be cut down because they were blocking the front of the school they, and, or they were creating so many pine needles since that's been decades now. And they've now become these towering shady trees that have become almost conic for that property. And now people love them. And so I was just thinking about uh, so many, so many principles wrapped up in that little story there about place, space, culture, legacy, all those ideas that come into the, how do you create school communities, which is why I was thrilled when you reached out with this topic. And let's walk into that conversation for leaders this week as they think about their own places and spaces. Well, I love that you opened with that story. It reminds me of my favorite adage of all time, which is, you know, when, when's the best time to plant a tree? And obviously the answer is 50 years ago, but the second best time is today. And so that's a great way to launch into our conversation today. And we should tell listeners how this happened. I'm so excited these days thinking about place and space that I texted you at odark 30 this morning and said, we have to talk about this on the podcast. And um, thank you for indulging me. And here we are just a few hours later. And the reason I'm so excited, I've been doing some of this thinking, this work with um, a fabulous educational leader. His name is Dr. Dustin Miller, and he's the director of the EDD program in educational administration and a professor at the department uh, at the Ohio State University. And he's the master on this. Okay. So I want to give credit to him because he has really challenged my thinking and um, does a lot of work in this area. So I would encourage any listener to reach out to him if if they would like more, but the thinking behind place and space is, you know, that, that space is something abstract. You can't really touch it. Right. But place is how we internalize that space. So in other words, place is space with meaning, right? So if you think about your house, 
that is a place, but it's the feelings that you have when you're there, that safety, the warmth, the love, the happiness, even sadness and grieving and mourning. And, and, um, you know, when, when you feel off the, it's still home, right. And it's still that space. And there's a lot of layers that go into what makes our spaces memory, maybe meaning, and so we have a relationship with a place because of the space that it means for us. So obviously there's a lot of implications for educational leaders. And, you know, your opening story to me resonated so deeply because here is this place and it is the where so many students and educators for years, for generations have gone. And the metaphor of the trees, like you said, there's so much wrapped up in there, but it really becomes part of the social relationships that we connect to where we go to school, where we learn, where we grow. And it just immediately makes me think about a question that I've heard so often. And sometimes in interviews where someone will ask you if you could create your dream school, you know, what would you place in it? You know, and, and that's such a interesting question. And I have to admit that my mind usually goes first when I'm, when I can pause to, well, let me first think about what people I want in those spaces, because you know, it's going to be the people that you place in there that are going to create the kind of environments where it becomes a place, not just a space. And so um, I would just love for you to unpack more because I, I really love that, you know, space is important. Obviously we need space, but it becomes place, correct me if I'm wrong, it becomes place by what we do with it. Is that, is that the distinction? Right. That that's the way I look at it. And, and when I think about it in the context of a school, because of course we could spend hours talking about our personal places and um, the space that we take up in the world, you know, there's, there's many podcasts we could do on this, but as an educational leader, what does that mean? You know, you've been given the key to this building and how do you represent the ideals of your community and your staff and your students and create an educational place mm -hmm. where everyone belongs, everyone has the opportunity to be seen and heard and valued. And, you know, well, we say these things, we say we want students to be heard and we say that we make our decisions because we want to do the best for kids, but it's unpacking that. And I would argue perhaps reconstructing that where the real work happens and, you know, there's this, there's this really deep question I struggle with a lot. You know, my job is obviously to do what's best for students, but sometimes it becomes at what cost, right? Because are you ever sacrificing the experience of, of one particular group of students for the benefit of another? And that to me leads to a distinction about leadership. And to be a leader means you're willing, you're not frightened of change. You're willing to lead change versus being a manager where you're just holding down the fort. You're just making sure everything's okay. And in, in the lens of space and place, do leaders have the ability to step outside of, of a culture of a building, say, or something that's been done, you know, for years and years and years and evolve that. So to me, I'm going to, I'm going to use this word again, mm -hmm. reconstruct. I think that courageous leaders are able to take many roles their role as the historian, as the visionary, as the marketer, as the relationship builder, take all those roles and say, okay, is there still, is there something that we need to reconstruct in this place that we have 
have for our students. So it's adapting, you know, it's keeping those students in mind. Yeah, let's pause there for just a moment. And because I don't want to pass by that, that point you just made on leadership, and especially those distinctions, the historian, the anthropologist, the visionary, the marketer, back up there, Jen, and talk a little bit about how each of those roles play out for, for leaders. And I think that's a fun exercise, perhaps for your listeners to think, you know, who am I in this building? Am I primarily the historian? And that's the person who says, no, this is, you know, this is what we've always done. This is what our community wants. This is, you know, we, we have to make sure that we are stewards of our legacy and our tradition. You might be a historian leader. You might be an anthropologist leader and that you might be someone who finds meaning in the behavior of what your school your and, and the people that attend your school do and say out in the world. You may be a visionary leader where you're, you know, you aspire to um, inspire those members of your school community. You might be the marketer. Um, this I think is, is one of my strengths. I don't love it. I wish I were more of a visionary and an anthropologist, but I'm a good marketer. I could tweet, I can Instagram, I can attend meetings, I can shake hands, I can smile. People like my school because of how I market it. And that's not even necessarily deliberate decisions, but it's, it is my comfort area there. And so I think it helps mm -hmm. to look at yourself as a leader and see what role you're playing and see if there's something that might be missing in completing that picture. And again, Dr. Miller, I want to keep giving him credit. He, he is so good at helping leaders see that. So it can be done mm -hmm. when you look at, at what your community is drawing from you and what energy you are giving back out to that community. Well, that's super helpful. And, and I'm glad you paused because I think sometimes, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, how sometimes schools need different kinds of leaders. And so there may be a leader, for instance, who needs to be, a school may need someone who's visionary to help them to get to that next place. Um, but then sometimes uh, schools school may need somebody who's willing to leverage that marketing ability. Um, but sometimes, and you know this, Jen, sometimes we're asked to change these hats depending on the what's needed. And so I think it's important sometimes for leaders to realize that you're probably at some point going to be stepping into each of these roles and depending on the needs of your school, sometimes you may need to protect some legacy. There's some things that need right. to change over time because they're outdated and we need to evolve. But sometimes you need to protect legacy because it's a value of your community. And sometimes you need to be able, like that anthropologist, to dig for the meaning in the behavioral organization. You know, why does our community value this? And, and let me dig deeper into this history of of um, of in the values of of my community, and sometimes we need a little fire under our seats, and that visionary is there. And then sometimes we forget that if we're not branding our schools, people aren't rallying around something and unifying around something to celebrate. And so all of those can be strength areas if we use them correctly. But but I want to keep this within the concept of of space and place where you're taking us and, and, and to step into that conversation about reconstruction. Why, why should leaders have that idea of reconstruction as something that they may need to be considering, especially summer may be a really good time to be thinking about some of these things too. Right. Summer for sure. And also 2021, you know, we, it's a hard time in education. We have been through a very traumatic experience that everybody has, every organization and every industry has, but we faced and I say we, meaning every educator, every aspiring educator, every retired educator, we're all, we have all experienced a change, I think, in how people see schools. 
I think there's, it's indisputable now that we, we need schools. We need a place for our students to go where they are challenged and where they feel safe and they feel seen. But there's some big issues. I know some of our colleagues, Will, are grappling with how we support our students of color, how we support students who may be struggling with gender or sexuality issues, social relationships, mental health, instruction, athletics, arts, hiring. You know, these are all really, really big issues that seem these days to have all been thrust under the same microscope. And the public, thanks in large part, I think, to social media, are able to sound off in ways they haven't ever before. And so now is the time, summer, and also, you know, the the first couple decades of the 21st century, now is the time to think about reconstructing some of those spaces and therefore places. So I wanted to land, you know, when, when I think about these things, I could take on any number of huge causes and think about a reconstruction effort. For me, I thought just for t- the day, the purposes of today's discussion, we could talk about instruction and we could talk about academics. And um, I, I made a list on a post-it note this morning about if I, if I were leading my school, what are some places in our instruction that need to be reconstructed? Mm, yeah, let's go there. Walk, oh. walk me through that, Jen, because I love that scenario of, and I was just in a conversation yesterday, in fact, with a couple of mastermind members, and this was exactly the conversation that we were having about some of the things we want to step into for the fall semester. How do we lead teachers? How do, how do leaders lead teachers into deeper conversations about instructional practice differentiation. So, so I'm so excited that you're going to walk us, walk us there in terms of thinking of it within the context of space and and place. Yes. And I, I love that we're going to talk about instruction. Although again, there's a lot of other issues that, that you might want to tackle. And, and I, I think it's important to say none of this needs to be done in isolation. I don't want any principal who's on a commute right now listening in their car to think I have to take this on because there's so much power in team and in perspectives and in insight. So when we think about, again, let's land with instruction. I hope that teachers who, like, let's say a teacher who's been teaching for 30 or 35 years and is a really strong teacher and a, and a content master, but is that teacher maybe struggling with evolving to what today's learners need. So, you know, when I started, I tell this, this story with all humility and um, humor and self-deprecation that I can. When I started, I loved packets. Well, I loved packets. I would go in on Sundays and I would make all these copies and I would staple them and I would hand them to my students on Monday and they were grammar packets, right? And so I, I would lecture them, you know, you have to really work ahead. You have to plan. And on Friday, I'm going to, we're going to go over these. We're going to grade them. And I would collect them. And then I would spend my entire weekend looking for little commas and little places on the grammar packets. And I didn't stop to think is, does this have value? Do my students love it? Do they hate it? Do the, what do the parents think? Does this, will this make them better writers? If I make them hunt and peck with their pencils for commas. So packets or any kind of consolidated work work task that requires rote and repeated practice, that might be something that today's learners don't need anymore. Uh, Homework, worksheets, whole class, whole period instruction, busy work, our, our grading practices. And I'm just going to keep 
saying a few more, if it's okay, textbooks, how we use textbooks. Do we close our classroom doors? Is there anybody still using an overhead projector? <laughs> um, are, are our classrooms places where the teacher is the master and the students are just sitting and absorbing? Those are, are um, very real, very effective um, instructional or classroom practices that may have seen their last day. It may be time to move along. We, we know better now. We know um, that things like spelling tests every Friday or reading logs for grades, or even let's just take that thing that, that drives me batty where students get 10 points if they bring in a box of tissues. You know, if we're grading students for actions not related to their learning or their, their growth, and if we're making inequitable places out of our learning space. Those are the reconstructions that we need. Um, and I'm going to say one more, maybe the thing that makes me most sad is when we have, have teachers or leaders who punish or reward groups or students for things out of a student's control, punishing the whole group for actions of a few. I joke, you know, oh, that's so 1960. And that's not to offend anybody who was teaching in 1960, but if you, you know, we're all gonna run two miles because one student was late for, or one athlete was late for practice. Those things, they're not fair. We know they're not fair, they're not equitable, and it's punishing the wrong problem and not going towards solutions. So that was a long-winded list of examples of some things that leaders might want to consider when they think about reconstruction. Well, I want to pause there, Jen, because I'm just imagining, um, especially veteran leaders listening to this or having conversations with veteran teachers, how quickly we hold on to practices that have become in some ways, they've become wrapped up in our identity as instructors. You know, maybe we, we sometimes we hold on to things because that's just the way we've always done it, or we think that it's effective. And I, and I think it's important, first of all, to realize that there are some instructors who can take old practices and effectively use them to carry kids into learning moments. And there are some instructors who can take old practices and they can't lead kids into learning. And there are some instructors who can take new practices and they can create learning and some instructors who can take new practices and they can't help affect learning. And so there's not always a golden rule on what works, what doesn't work in every situation with every kid and every teacher. But the, the most important thing is, are you questioning and reflecting on your practices exactly. and really being honest of is really being honest, does this still work? And if it, if it, if, if it doesn't, and of course, you know, if we want to get scientific, we can look at some of John Hattie's work and realize that there is, st there is data out there that says that some things don't work. I mean, you right. they might have some effect, but the effects, but the effect standard isn't maybe high enough to justify you giving that much time to it. And so obviously like student own student own learning is high on Hattie's effect standards because students own their own learning versus the teacher just up there giving lectures all the time. When students are owning their own learning, there's a super, there's, there's a much higher effect than teachers that are simply delivering content, expecting kids to memorize it. So we know what doesn't work. And, but I think the important question for instructors and leaders is giving yourself permission to reflect and then asking yourself the question, what could I be doing instead? So I, I, that list, I think that list is so amazing because you're so right. There's so many things that we've that we've done over time that become sometimes ruts that we fall into, um, and we seldom reflect on why are we still doing this. And I think that can apply 
to a lot of areas, but right now we're focusing primarily on instruction. Right. And I'm glad you did say there are some things that may that may need evolution, but they still have a place. So my quick example is I, I rolled my eyes the other day and I said something um, to my daughter. Oh my God, I hate it when we're using um, word finds. Word finds are ridiculous. And she looked at me as though I had had killed her cat. She said, I love word finds, mom. I love them. And I thought, oh, okay, then there's value there. If it's something that students like and it's helpful, then there is a little bit of value there, right? So um, I think it comes down to intention and any sort of decision to keep abandoned or reconstruct something comes down to intention. And if I've thought yeah. about its value and I've thought about whether the value is exactly is actually what I think it is, then it's worth keeping. I can remember when um, my son was going into, and honestly, I can't remember now if it was third or fourth grade, but I remember the new teacher had hosted a parent orientation meeting and as he was going through the classroom expectations for that coming year, a parent finally raised her hand and said, I haven't heard you say anything about reading logs. <laughs> and so he paused for a moment and he just said, he, and he said, and I knew his reputation before our son had enrolled in his class because the year before he'd been recognized as a teacher of the year for that school. He had had some really great um, student instruction and his reputation preceded him. But he paused in that moment and he just said, well, I just want to reflect with you on that because um, I've, I have not used reading logs and I don't use reading logs. And I want you to be patient with me because what you're going to discover is I'm going to try to spend time individually with each of your students discovering what they love to read about or what they're curious to learn about. And, and I would almost guarantee you that your child's going to end up reading more this year without a reading log than they did last year. And if that's not the case, please let me know. And I loved how he managed that conversation because he didn't try to diss on reading logs, but he just explained why he didn't use them and his philosophy on, on reading and everything he said proved true. In the weeks ahead, I watched my son suddenly discovering books and ideas and curiosities that the teacher was coaching him in. And he did more reading that year than he had done before with reading logs. And so, and so I, I, I really appreciated the moment that he took to reflect on a tradition the parents expected to be practiced and then his courage not to do that. I, courage was the word I was I was thinking as you told that whole story. I, I feel very strongly about reading logs or about how we need to evolve past them. I've done some writing on that for choice literacy. And what's funny is, is there are some people that are still, some teachers that are still really hanging on. And why do we ever hang on to anything? It's because it feels safe, right? It feels like something we know, we understand there, there's a um, quantitative number we can put onto it. Student turned it in, student turn, didn't turn it in, parent signed it or whatever. But those kind of like a reading log or a spelling test or whatever to generate a grade does not necessarily make the learning authentic. And in the cases of reading logs, sometimes, especially if we have parents sign them, it, it really does encourage um, dishonesty for the grade rather than really reading and understanding a text and talking about it with your teacher. And so I think I have a little bit of a teacher crush on that man you just described, Will, because 
it was courageous. And that teacher really thought about how he was going to reconstruct literacy for his young readers. And he thought about what it really was about was the reading and then the relationship that he had with his, with his learners. So that's what I'm talking about. When I talk about reconstruction, we're going, we're not going to abandon reading and we're not going to abandon thinking about reading. We're going to abandon the piece of paper that a, a child will fill out. Well, and I know we could we could talk about a lot of other illustrations on that too, Jen, but I want to give you an opportunity to take that conversation to to the next level because I know you brought into this conversation some examples of what might be better fits for some of these areas. So decide where you want to take us in that conversation because I know there's a lot you could unpack here. Right. There is. Like I said, that we have hours we could talk about this if we had it had time, but there's just some terms that are out there and they're exciting terms. They're exciting concepts, I guess would be a better word that I hope leaders will consider. One of my favorite is interleaving. And this is a technique in which we take our curriculum and we integrate it with giving the student the power to direct their interest and engagement. So it's a purposeful combination of differentiation, personal personalization, and voice. None of those are new concepts to our listeners, none of them, but it's kind of taking them all together and bringing them to the student's um, area of expertise. There's also a reconstruction that can happen with how we look at the teacher. The teacher can be the mentor and the coach. It's the students who do the researching, the reading, the writing, the, the numeracy work. They become the learning expert. So instead of the um, sage on the stage, you know, the teacher is providing the resources and insight and the teacher complements the learning. And we have all seen teachers in our buildings do this work masterfully. So it's, again, not a new concept, but it's something that in many cases may need a little bit of a nudge toward reconstruction. Collaborative learning environments, blended learning, you know, that this right now is when the iron is smoking hot for blended learning opportunities because we're coming out of COVID many of us are going back into more traditional learning environments and it will break my soul if we don't take some of that learning we had from COVID and develop more collaborative learning spaces. We have, you know, on-demand video responses now, things like Flipgrid and Marco Polo that are wonderful resources for on-demand student engagement through video. Um, you know, I don't even need to mention Zoom or Google Meet because people know how those work, but we have accompanying tools like Screencastify or Edpuzzle that we can do to review and record content via video. We also have ways to be inclusive in ways in, in situations we hadn't had before. And again, I thank this trauma we've been through for the silver lining of ensuring accessibility for students. So applications like closed captioning, closed captioning, translation, subtitles that ensure no one isn't accessing what we need. We have really powerful and um, applicable learning management systems, Schoology, Google Classroom, Canvas, you know, whatever it is your district uses. I really hope it wasn't just a 2020 thing. I hope we can find ways to integrate those learning management systems into our classrooms. And so those are, those are just a few things. I have more, of course, but I, I do want to make sure we say joy and laughter. We, we want to evolve and reconstruct our learning places so that our students don't find any of this arduous or difficult or something to dread. 
learning is fun. People are fun. Relationships are fun and reconstruction is fun. And so we, we can evolve and be viable for the students and create um, places where they will find a future as learners. Principal Matters listeners, you know that I will include in the show notes those categories that Jen just unpacked, interleaving the teacher as a mentor coach, collaborative learning environments, blended learning environments, um, video responses, all of those areas that I think are just so important for us to consider in terms of our instructional practices. But, but Jen, I, when I think about space and place in terms of instruction, I it's so helpful for me sometimes to, to put myself, and I know you do this too, to put myself into the skin of students and ask, how would I want to spend my day? You know, what kind of learning environment would spark interest and curiosity in me and then try to deliver it? You know, how, how can we keep placing ourselves back, not necessarily in what is the most convenient instructional practice for me to deliver content or instruction, but what is the most accessible way as a student for me to actually learn and master this material and content? So, so many of those areas, I think, spark those kinds of questions and those ideas. And, and I know as instruction and instructors and instructional leaders, that's the challenge is how do right. we, how do we keep our minds, our minds looking through the eyes of kids um, and looking at ourselves objectively um, in fostering those kinds of, of conversations so that we can hopefully lead that kind of learning too. And, and you mentioned this earlier too, which I think is how do we include those who matter most in this conversation? You know, because as leaders, we can see sometimes from the outside who's more effective, who's least effective. But some, how do you help teachers see that themselves? So I, I don't know if you, if you want to talk about that, that right now, but there's a question in my mind too, is how can leaders think about stepping into these kinds of conversations collaboratively so that they're not trying to impose change, but they're trying to inspire change? Well, you just took the words right out of my mouth. When you said fostering conversations a few sentences ago, I thought, oh, we, we have to say that. And then you said it. Principals can't go in and say, okay, everybody, you're going to need to reconstruct something that you, that you did last year. You need to evolve. Okay. You know, I'll check in with you and your evaluation in December. Let me know what you did. It, it doesn't work that way because what happens is teachers go underground and they do what, what they felt worked and was safe and they learn to work around the principal mandate. Right. So it has to be a conversation and there has to be organic, organic and natural roots to any change. And so it starts with why are we doing this? And why are we doing any of this? And what does our audience need? What do our clients need? Our students. And that doesn't mean saying, Hey kids, what do you want to do today? Because what will they want to do? Word finds and watch movies and, and maybe go home early for summer break. That's what kids think they want. So it's not just about asking the kids what they want. It's asking students what they need or what speaks to them or what their interests are. And so it is about conversation and it's about doing it in a non-threatening way, nothing punitive about it. It, it should come from a place of inspiration or a desire to inspire rather than coming from a place of um, forced change. And strong leaders know that. I'm not saying anything that, that anyone listening doesn't already know. We can't mandate change. We have to inspire change. 
Well, Jen Schwanke, I want to, if I have your permission, circle back for some additional conversation, because I would just really like to dig deeper into this conversation when we think about additional ways that we can apply space and place to instructional change or any other areas too. But as we wrap up today's conversation, I just have one more quick story. You know me, I'm a storyteller, but I was speaking to a group in Minnesota about a week or so ago, about 200 school leaders, and I was getting to talk about my book, Pause, Breathe, Flourish. And about halfway through the conversation, I paused because we were doing a segment on um, influence. You know, what kind of influence do you leave when you step into a room? And so I just paused for a moment and I asked them, let's just pause for a second. And will you guys reflect back with me? Because we're about halfway through my content. Reflect back with me what pedagogy you've seen me using, what instructional practices have you seen me, what what have you seen me do in this first half of this conversation that's either been effective or not effective? And, and this was a great question for a group of leaders because they're good at this. So they immediately, because they evaluate teachers all day long, they started immediately saying, well, you did, the, you have visuals, you have models, you use, you um, use music, you, you welcomed us when we walked in, you asked good questions, you, you put us in collaborative groups, you walk in. So they were doing all these things that were in, in the reason, but the reason I stopped and asked that question was not for kudos. The reason I asked that question is because that's how we have to think. We, you know, when we're, if, if we are, mo- we have to model what we want to see others do. And those same leaders need to be willing to model for their teachers, what they want to see them do. And as we're thinking about reconstructing, we have to be willing to reconstruct too, which is mean we have to be willing to keep taking risks ourselves we have to be willing to try things that are scary ourselves. We may even want to get in front of kids again ourselves and, and test the things that we're asking others to do too, because, because we, if we do, we stay fresh. And so, um, so Jen, I, I, don't, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts you want to say as we, as we wrap up this week's conversation. No, again, I just hope that we've inspired the principal leaders that, that he listened to us just to think about this. It doesn't mean you need to go and, and blow everything up tomorrow. Just think about it and think about place and space. Think about your own spaces and places and, and what they mean to you. And then maybe put your, yourself in the shoes of some of the students and even some of the teachers, you know, and, and what your building represents for them and think about if anything needs reconstructed. Well, Principal Matters listeners, thank you for taking time to listen each week. Jen, as I wrap up this week's conversation, I just want to thank you for, for jumping in so so frequently to the Principal Matters conversations. And listeners, I just want to thank you for the time that you take to learn together because you are not alone because what you do matters. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, everyone. You can find other free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com.